0: Welcome to episode 16 of Clearly KC, a podcast by the National Keratoconus Foundation, featuring information about life with keratoconus. I'm your host, Dr. Melissa Barnett, and today we're going to discuss higher-order aberrations, otherwise known as HOAs. Dr. Sint is professor of clinical ophthalmology at the University of Iowa and director of clinical research for Oculus. She's married to a fellow optometrist, Dr. Stephen Sint and has four kids and a cat. Now Chris is absolutely amazing for those of you who don't know her, you should. And she has just great insights and is moving everything forward and has been moving everything forward for many years. So it's a real special treat to have Chris on the Clearly Casey podcast. Welcome Chris. Thank you, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. So let's talk about HOAs today. Please explain what HOAs are and why they are important.
1: I tell my patients there are lower order optics and then there are higher order optics. And what we mean by that is lower order optics are what we've corrected for hundreds of years. That's what we can correct in glasses, contact lenses. Lower order optics is the math that I know how to do. It is the math that I know how to teach. It is the math that I can do on paper. Now, higher-order optics is very complex math. This is where you have to do sines and cosines and all that's very complex math. And and so it's not things that we have historically been able to correct. Now, higher-order optics, though, are something that people with keratoconus suffer from a great deal. These are the optics that can't be corrected in their current glasses or contact lenses. So when you look at headlights and you get the, you know, know, the the spread of light that comes out from the headlight, or you can't really read the TV monitor, you know, the letters on the bottom of the TV because the words all kind of mush together, that is higher order optics. And I've been in this business almost 30 years, and higher order optics are one of those things we've been aware of all this time. We know that light bends in the eye that we cannot correct with traditional math, and so these higher-order optics, when patients say, I see halos, I see flare, historically, we've always just kind of looked at the patient went, yeah, I know, there's nothing I can do. This is as good as you can get. Patients that wanted more or better vision, we'd say, well, you can have a corneal transplant. Can't guarantee that you're still not going to have halos and flare, but that's what we can try." These are the options that we had to us. But the exciting thing is we now can correct some of these higher-order optics. And so it's something that I have spent probably the last two to three years of my life trying to figure out, how do we take the measurements, because we have these instruments that can measure them now, how do we take the measurements and put them on a lens? And it's very exciting, Dr. Brennett, because we just have all these options, and we're still in the infancy of understanding it, but I really think in five, 10 years, we will have much better control, and these higher-order optics are going to become more standard on contact lenses.
0: Yes, and I understand that you're actually using HOAs and incorporating them into scleral lenses. How do you speak to your patients about this option?
1: When I talk to my patients, first of all, I want to make sure they're bothered by it, right? I want to make sure that I'm actually going to move forward. As strange as this sounds, sometimes some of these higher-order optics are useful, right? And let me give you an example. Oftentimes, patients with keratoconus will say, no, I don't really use my bifocals that much. Or no, I don't really I don't really need to put on reading glasses or they're 50 and they're like, no, I'm good. And I want to make sure we understand that you always have to give something to get something, really. And that's kind of universal for life, right? With higher order optics, uh, specifically coma, which is the one that's predominant in keratoconus, coma gives you a bigger depth of focus. It gives you a bigger depth of field. So often people with keratoconus will not really need that bifocal, but when I correct all their HOAs, they're like, yeah, headlights are better, but I have to wear reading glasses now. As I learn, that's a conversation that's better to have at the beginning than at the end, because sometimes now I tell patients, you're going to have to wear reading glasses. we are like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to do that. And so we're learning as we go along. We're learning as we go along.
0: Right. I, I think that's very important. Presbyopia and ways to correct it. Unfortunately, we do have multiple ways in scleral lenses, for example, even multifocal lenses. But having that realistic conversation on the front end is very important versus after the lenses that are correcting for all the glare and halos and flare, but the patient loses the ability to read up close.
1: Right. I find that the best person to correct the HOAs is on is... Not the person who doesn't care, who thinks they're fine, also not the person who complains bitterly of the HOAs. There's a sweet spot in there for correcting patients' HOAs. And that really is the patient who notices it, but doesn't hyper focus on it because we can't correct them all. I, I can't correct them all, but I consistently can correct 65 to 85% of the HOAs. So there's always going to be a little bit of residual higher orders. And that's because we're human and humans are squishy and our system changes and our tear film changes and our cataracts change and our pupil changes sizes. There's always a little leftover. And, and so the patients that are like, I would be happy if most of it was gone, I can still live with a little bit. Those are the patients that seem to really, really benefit from it. The other thing though, is pa- we've told patients for so long, we can't correct them, that they've stopped asking. So it's really important for me to bring it up and, and chat with them about it and be like, hey, this is what I'm noticing. With my aberrometer, I measure them. And then patients that have a certain amount of aberration, I specifically ask them, do you see flare that goes up like this? Or do you see double images? Because I can see it and I can measure it on my aberrometer. And then patients are like, yeah, oh my, what? you know? And I'm like, I can see it right here. I think a lot of times people with caretacombs just stop talking about it because they're told they can't do anything about it and can't do anything about it, go away. It's difficult. So, yeah.
0: Have you ever been surprised where you correct HOAs, where you thought, ah, this is not going to be the best sort of case scenario, and then the patient was really happy with the vision? Yes.
1: So, you know, shout out to the team, my research team, because honestly, I'm just the conduit to helping patients. My research team that I work with are the people that do everything out there, right? This is Jason Marzak and Dan Neal and Ray Applegate and the rest, and as I think, this is the rest of my research, I'm Broncos Noise. Um, and so we are always pushing the envelope. So the answer to your question is I am trying regular keratoconus, run-of-the-mill keratoconus, you know, typical keratoconus. I can correct those people pretty consistently. I'm really good at So now I'm going off-road. I'm trying the cases where I'm like, oh, it's probably talking to work. And I'm con- consistently surprised. And I just submitted a, a poster for Arvo where I really looked at what kind of corneas have problems that HOEs may not be correctable for. Scars, for example, if you have a scar in your cornea, that's an opacity. You can't see through it, right? So there's going to be a certain amount of vision that can't be corrected where you just don't have light going through the cornea. However, those scars really surprise me because while I don't get vision through the scar and I set expectations appropriately, I can often correct, say, 50% of their residual keratoconus related higher order aberrations. And it's a huge improvement on the quality of life. So for example, if I can get somebody who's uh, 2080 and I can make them 2030, that's a big deal for them.
0: And that means single get- driving vision here in California for sure.
1: Right. And and maybe they don't have to have a corneal transplant or another corneal transplant or a riskier uh procedure. Um And so right now, my research right now is focused on finding the things that make HOA correction difficult, mostly so that I can educate my colleagues on who are good candidates and who to proceed with caution. It is very rare that I've come across somebody where I'm like, no, this just isn't going to work for you. But I do try to set expectations. I don't ever want to set somebody up to thinking that this is going to be the end all be all and then have them be sad. I want them to uh, have realistic expectations that this is going to make it better. It may not make it perfect. The Correct. other thing I've noticed about keratoconics, specifically with with HOAs is oftentimes they'll put the lens on. I will be able to measure it and say, look, oh my gosh, this person went from the super high scatter plot to what's in their normal range for their age. And the patient will go, okay, okay. And then they leave, and they come back two weeks later, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, my night driving, my this, my that." And they notice it after they've been wearing it. So I think there's a bit of neuroadaptation that happens to people. It's I mean, not like when you put your scleral lens on for the first time and you're like, "Oh my gosh!" It's more
0: like, yeah, yeah, okay, I feel
1: this better. I've also done trials where I've taken people and put them back into their lower order lenses after wearing the HOAs, and when you go back to the lower orders, they're like wow, this is what I was walking around like, I didn't know. So it's easy to get better. It's more noticeable when you go the other direction.
0: Great. That makes a lot of sense. So in your practice, what do you feel are some of the benefits of having aberrometry?
1: Well, I like to scan all of my patients when they come in. I just like to get a baseline so that I have an objective Way of being able to talk to the patient and bring up these aberrations in their life. So for me, having aberrometry in my practice, it does a couple of things. One is we can do what we call a dynamic refraction because in people with keratoconus, just if I'm trying to get them glasses, for example, they have these clusters of points. So somebody with keratoconus has, maybe has like thousand focal points in their eye, but they're going to be in clusters. So they might have three or four clusters of focal points in their eyes. So they may be a minus 14 or a minus eight or a minus two and see as good with any of those prescriptions. So with di- with uh, aberrometry, it lets me sort of try out some of these different focal points in their eye and get them a pair of glasses. It may not be perfect, but something that they can put on and get around the house and brush their teeth, maybe drive if they need to, things like that, depending on their prescription. But really lets me help them in a greater way. But it also lets me go, well, how much of this is cataract versus keratoconus? Because our patients, we all get older and cataracts develop in people. And so there have been patients where I've been saying, you know what, I think if we get your cataract out, you will see better, right? But the cataract surgeons are looking for guidance as well. It's not just what's your corneal shape and your axial eye length. With the advent of lenses, I can put Cylinder in them, right? So I'll say, yeah, put the toricity in the implant in the eye. This is what we're expecting we're going to see. And then knowing after it, this is how I'm going to correct your vision. It allows me to communicate with the surgeons and the other people on the care team uh, of the patients as well. It also allows me to show the patient that I know, I know the experience that they're going through, even though I'm not personally going through it and helps us, again, develop that care plan and the direction that that patient individually needs to go in.
0: I think we need to do a whole lecture on cataract surgery and keratoconus. That that would be be great. There are (laughs) lots of questions. There are some studies out there, but I get questions constantly that I answer, but I think we should do a case-based lecture. So let's do that in the future.
1: That would be fantastic. And I have to say over the 30 years that I've been in practice, the way I approach it has been very different. 30 years ago, or even when uh, torque IOLs first came in, I, I would have killed my cataract surgeon if they put a, a torque IOL in the eye. And now I'm frequently encouraging them to do it so that when people don't have anything on, they can function at their best capacity. Of course, that's going to be on an individual basis.
0: Right. And that's a lot of the conversation is what is the target and where do we need to be and how can the patient function somewhat after cataract surgery, but still needing specialty contact lenses to correct their vision, for example.
1: Yes. I had a patient the end of last week that had cataract surgery and he came back to me. And this sounds crazy. I've seen him for 30 years and referred him out. We had a big consult about which implant to put in his eye. And his vision ended up being 2025. Uncorrected. Wow. Right. And he had some aberrations and things. We had a big, long talk about it, and we all decided he was good. He was retired at this point. His visual needs were different. He actually didn't even have to go back into a contact lens. I'm not promising that for everybody else, but I I think as we move into new types of implants, like these light adjustable lenses, we can maybe harness these ageways, understanding the cornea. I know I'm really hanging on this cataract here for a second, but... One of the contraindications for doing an HOA-corrected contact lens is cataract, because what I find is as that cataract progresses, it changes up their higher-order aberration profile, and they end up not happy. Those are the only patients that really have been not happy with HOA-corrected lenses are people that have cataracts. So seeing that and seeing a cataract HOA pattern is really important uh, to this. I've also had a couple of patients that have progressed. Their keratoconus has progressed. And I actually was was picking it up on the aberrometer before I could pick it up on the topographer, oh. and, and so with that, we were able to get them in and get them cross-linked to stabilize them because we could see the refractive changes before the meca- actual mechanical changes. So aberrometry might be a really incredible tool for picking up early, early changes in people and getting them the appropriate treatment so that they don't
0: continue to progress. Which leads right into my next question. So okay. when you're talking to colleagues about obtaining aberrometry, so for example, if they don't have an ab- aberrometer in their practices, what advice would you give?
1: Let me rephrase that. How do people talk about aberrations when they don't have an
0: aberrometer? Um, say someone is interested in aberrometry, but they do not have an aberrometer in their practice. They're sort of looking into it. What advice would you Give the practice. On. So, the first thing is make sure you
1: know why you're bringing the aberometry into your practice. An aberometer is by far the best autorefractor. So, it's going to speed up your clinic. You just to bring an aberrometer in just for the incredible. Auto refraction capabilities is totally worth it. If you see a lot of cornea patients, if you see a lot of refractive anterior segment patient practice, it's going to become really a must have. I would, if you're looking at an auto refractor at this point, I would say really consider bringing an aberrometer in instead of just a regular auto refractor. And again, because of the dynamic refraction situation that I was talking about. As far as bringing in an aberrometer to put HOEs on scleral lenses, the lens or the base that you put it on is incredibly important. Like incredibly important. Um, not to let a cat out of bag, but I think Ray has submitted a paper where he really looked at rotation of the lens and how far off it can be. And really that lens can't be rotated more than five degrees or you take all the aberrations and you don't put them in the correct place on the eye. So the stability of the lens is incredible. It has to be, I cannot emphasize that enough, And so therefore, you need to think about what lenses are you working with and do they have a 2 capabilities on them? And it's not really just can you get a lens that's stable enough? You really need to be thinking about how fast can you get that lens stable? Because if you need to do three or four or five lenses to get a lens stable enough to put that on, you have really exhausted the, the patient emotionally by bringing them back to the practice. I really can't say that enough. Like we have Maybe to. Maybe counter- the patient,
0: right? Maybe the practitioner and the staff as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you have to make sure that everybody is like in their super happy bubble, that you're moving people forward in what they feel like is a positive direction. And so you want to make sure you know, you're working with a lens that you have really great control over. You know how fast you can get that patient to success with that lens. And then, because at that point once you're stable, only then can you measure aberrations through that lens and start the process. So it's also really important then to decide what lab are you working with and how many lenses is it going to take you. And so in the unit or the system that I'm working with, my research team, it's usually from the point of stability, we can get about 65 to 85 percent of the aberrations corrected with the first lens after that. So in one lens, we can get that done. Typically, if I have to go more than that, I'm looking, there's a cataract, we've got progression, there's something about their disease that's changing and not just measuring the aberrations. So you got to make sure you know what aberrometer you're working with, who's the team you're working with, and what's really good control over the ones that you're working with. All those are very important moving moving forward.
0: Excellent, excellent words of wisdom here. Well, Chris, unfortunately, we're out of time. Of course, we can talk for eight more hours on this, and I would love to continue these conversations, but thank you so much sure. for all of your contributions, wisdom, and willingness to share with all of us and thank for all of our you. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. For all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us on Clearly KC. Please listen to all the episodes of the Clearly KC podcast on Podbean or your favorite podcast app and subscribe to get future episodes. For now, I'm Dr. Melissa Barnett, wishing you a wonderful holiday season and a happy new year. See you next time on Clearly Casey.